Well, good morning, church. Uh, it is my privilege uh, to bring God's Word to you today. Uh, the text this morning can be found on page 943 of the Pew Bibles. Uh, let me pray again and ask God for help as we come to His Word. Let's pray. Father, you tell us in your Word to consider Jesus the High Priest of our confession. So this morning we ask that you would help us do that. Help us to see Christ. Help us to behold His Gospel. We ask for his sake. Amen. Um, in the introduction to this book, Gentle and Lowly, uh, which, by the way, you can get at the book corner downstairs uh, later, uh, author Dane Ortland describes uh, the group of people for which he wrote his book. So I quote him because I think our text today speaks to the exact same group of people. It is for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty, those running on fumes, those whose Christian lives feel like constantly running up a descending escalator, those of us who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up that bad again? It is for that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is running thin. For those of us who know God loves us, but suspect that we have deeply disappointed him. Who, who have told others of the love of, love of Christ, yet wonder if, as for us, he harbors mild resentment. Who wonder if we have shipwrecked our lives beyond repair. Who are convinced that we've permanently diminished our usefulness to the Lord. Who have been swept off our feet by perplexing pain and are wondering how we can keep living under such numbing darkness. It is, in other words, for normal Christians. Today's text was for normal Christians, like the weak and weary readers, who have been told to press on, hold fast to your confidence. God has spoken through His Son, and He is infinitely greater than the angels. So pay attention to the message that He brings. Don't neglect the great salvation. Because if you do, like the wilderness generation, you will not enter God's rest. Take care lest any of you have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And while the promise of rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Friends, did last week's text shake you up? Did it strike you hard? It caused you to reflect on your own unbelief and rebellion against God in your hearts. Well, if any reader was left complacent, if any reader was in their hearts rationalizing or trying to hide unbelief and rebellion, uh, listen again to the author's words at the end of our text last week. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Well, if the readers were once a weak and weary audience tempted to, to give up on their confession, I think they are now also a guilty and terrified audience, fearful, that they too, like their forefathers, forefathers, had failed or would fail 
to enter God's rest. Friends, today's text is for normal Christians like them. And it is for normal Christians like you and me. Normal Christians like you and me who sometimes wonder how we are going to get through life. Who sometimes have no idea how to persevere. Who sometimes wonder if we are even going to make it. Normal Christians like you and me who need mercy and need help, but know deep down that we don't deserve it. And so we might be tempted to escape reality. We might drown ourselves in work, we might drown ourselves in entertainment, we might drown ourselves in pleasure. Or we might be tempted to help ourselves. We might rise up early and go to bed late, toiling anxiously, without rest, to secure our future. We might go all out to do good things, to prove to ourselves and others that we are good people. We might conform to fit in, we might bounce around relationships to help comfort our lonely hearts. Or we might be tempted to despair. We might isolate. We might give up trying. We give up on everything. We might resign to hopelessness. But friends, to such Christians, the author of Hebrews writes this in, in Hebrews 4 verse 16. Look there, glorious words. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. How? How can I, the complete mess that I am, with all my sins and failures, all my fears and doubts and shame and unbelief, how is it possible for me to approach the throne where the one who sees all things and knows all things sits? Wouldn't it be a throne of judgment instead of, throne, instead of the throne of grace? Do I deserve mercy? How can I dare to ask for help? And are you saying that I can do all this with confidence? Friends, yes, we can. It is a throne of grace that we can draw near to with confidence to receive mercy for all our failures, past, present, and future, uh, to find help, help for our lives, help for our hearts, help for trials, help to persevere, help to strive that we might be those of faith who endure, who hold fast our confession till the end, who enter into God's ultimate rest. That's what the, one, the writer wants us to know from here, and I pray that today we go away knowing this as well. So why can we draw near? Let's look at Hebrews 4, verse 4, 14 to 16. Follow along with me in your Bibles. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this text gives us our big idea for today, which will guide the rest of our time. We can draw near because of our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. We can draw near because of our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. We'll cover our text in three points, 
three glorious reasons why we can and should draw near to God for mercy and help. Number one, draw near because Jesus has been divinely appointed for you. Number two, draw near because Jesus can sympathize with you fully. And number three, draw near because Jesus has dealt with your sin completely. So draw near because Jesus has been divinely appointed for you, because Jesus can sympathize with you fully, and because Jesus has dealt with your sin completely. Well, if you grew up as a Jew, the fact that we draw near to a living God through a person called a high priest uh, would not have been something new to you. But for people like us, that might be an unfamiliar category. Uh, What does a high priest have anything to do with me and God? Uh, Here, we we thank God for the Old Testament. Have you ever wondered why the the OT is so long? Or or why um, Jesus took so long to come? Why, Why did God take so much time to send Jesus? Well, I can't answer that fully, but... I know that one reason is because God was putting in place categories for us to understand Jesus and what he would do when he finally came. Uh, The Old Testament gives us the grammar and the vocabulary to understand the New Testament. And so it's really important for us to study it well if we want to understand Jesus. And the category of high priest is one example. We wouldn't understand it if we didn't have the Old Testament. So look with me at at chapter 5. Uh, one to four. Uh, here the author gives us a, a short explanation of the high priest in the Old Testament. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honour for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So there is God who created all things, the universe and everything in it. And there is man, which God created, you and me. And he created everything perfect. And as God's creation, we were meant to live by His design and His rules because He is the Creator. He knows what's best for us. He wants what's best for us. But we decided that we don't want to honour God. We don't want to worship Him. We don't want to live according to His good rules. We chose to rebel against God. That's what the Bible calls sin. All of us have sinned against God. And because sin entered the world... Uh, The perfect creation was spoiled. Uh, Everything was ruined. Man was supposed to live forever, but because of sin, death entered the world. Uh, Look around you, everything is dying. Everything is decaying and wasting away. This is the result of sin. And because God is a holy God, altogether good and without sin, uh, He cannot be in the presence of sinful man. So man was supposed to dwell with God in His good presence, uh, but because of sin, man was cast out separated from the good presence of God. And because God is a just God, He's rightly angry at sin and cannot let sin go unpunished. So man was supposed to enjoy God's good gifts and blessings, but because of sin, man instead faced God's wrath, God's anger. So there's God, 
there's man and there's sin which separates God and man and puts man under the holy wrath of God. But amazingly, God made a way for man to have a relationship with him again. And God made a way for his anger to be turned away from man's sin. And this was through a system of human high priests who would mediate between God and man. God would speak to the people through the high priest, and the high priest would offer sacrifices on behalf of man. Uh, animals which would die in the place of man as a substitute for man, and this would deal with sin. God's anger would be turned away from the people. So friends, you are right if you say that with all your sins and failures, you cannot by yourself draw near to God. Because the way for us, if we want to relate to God, has not changed. God is still holy. He is still rightly angry with sin. He will always be. And we are still sinful. As long as we are in this world, we will be. If we want to have a relationship with God, we will need a high priest. Well, can we just choose someone, anyone then to, to be our high priest? No, we can't. We don't decide the rules. God made the system. He sets the terms. Not anyone can be a high priest. Let's look again at verse 1 to 4 of chapter 5. Let's consider three qualifications of a high priest. Number one, he needs to fulfill the role of mediating between God and men by dealing with sin. We see this in, in verse 1. Uh, this is ultimately the key role of the high priest, to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Number two, he needs to share in the weakness of the people he serves so that he can deal gently with them. We see this in verse 2 and 3. Well, two aspects to this. <clears throat> Firstly, the human high priest himself faces temptation and is prone to sin. So he is able to understand the people when they too fall into sin. And he can deal gently with them. Well, secondly, he also shares in the guilt and the weight of sin as the people bring their sacrifices before God for the atonement of their sin. Uh, that knowledge that the animal in front of you is taking your place to die. And if not for it, you would have to die. The high priest understands this because he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well. Number three, and finally, he must be divinely appointed. He must be appointed by God himself. We see this in verse four. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Here we think to number 16, when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram led a revolt to challenge the high priesthood of Aaron accusing him of exalting himself above the rest of them. They wanted to be the high priest. They wanted the kind of access that Aaron had to God's presence. Friends, number 16 tells us what happened to them and their families and all, and all who presumed to come before God's presence without his authorization. It says the ground under them split open and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up their household, all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. And the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And fire came down from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. No one takes this honor for himself 
but only when called by God. So friends, do you have a high priest? Do you have someone that meets these qualifications? Do you have someone whom you know has been appointed by God? Do you have someone whom you, uh, who, can, can he sympathize with your weakness and deal gently with your bruised heart, your troubled soul, your tender conscience? Does he make sacrifices to deal with your sin? Well, if you don't, then there is no way for you to draw near to God. There's no way for you to receive mercy and help. You are separated from God now, and you will be forever. And you will face his wrath for your sin that has not been dealt with. But the glorious truth is that we do have one. He is far better than any human high priest that, that came before him. He is the final high priest. We have the final high priest that all the past high priests were pointing to. We have a great high priest. His name is Jesus, the Son of God. As we look at the rest of the text, the author is going to show us how Jesus fulfills all of these qualifications. The author has walked us down three steps on one side, telling us the qualifications of a high priest, and now he's going to walk us up the, the three steps on the other side to prove to us first, in verse 5 to 6, that Jesus was divinely appointed, then prove to us in verse 7 to 8 that Jesus does share in our weakness. And then we will hit the pinnacle of his argument in verse 9 to 10 to come to the conclusion that Jesus does fulfill the key role of mediating between God and man by dealing with our sin. He is our high priest and we can draw near to God. So friends, let's consider Jesus together. Consider firstly that you can, draw near to, you can draw near because Jesus was divinely appointed for you. Picking up in chapter 5, verse 5 to 6. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in, an, in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So what the first quotation from Psalm 2 verse 7, we've seen before, isn't it? In Hebrews 1, and ch uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, back there, the writer, in comparing Jesus to the angels, says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So the writer has established that God was the one who said this to Jesus, and that Jesus was appointed the son of God. Remember, Eugene explained there that son uh, is a title. And hence, when God says, you are my son, it's a declaration of appointment, not of parentage. Well, now the writer goes to, he, uh, to Psalm 110, the psalm that Valerie read for us just now, and we see here another you are, another declaration of appointment. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So the writer is claiming here that the same God who appointed Christ to the title of Son of God also appointed him as a high priest here in Psalm 110. A forever high priest, an eternal high priest, not one whose service will end because of death, but one whose priesthood is eternal. I think that's a big part of what it means that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
This will be further explained in Hebrews chapter 7. But I think the writer's point here is that as the human high priest was appointed by God, so also Jesus did not exalt himself to this honour, but was appointed to God, but was appointed by God in the words of this psalm. Well, two ways I think we can respond to God's word here. Friends, firstly, I think just thinking about the fact that there are high priests in the first place, we should respond with gratefulness to God, isn't it? God made the first move. He didn't need to, but he put in place a way for us to be reconciled to him. Think about his sovereign power and wisdom that spans across the ages. How from all those years back, he put in place a plan to bring us into relationship with himself. And how all those years back, he put in place a system that would ultimately help us to understand the glorious work of the final high priest when he comes. Let's respond to God in gratitude. Secondly, we should respond with confidence. Draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Confidence that we can approach the holy God because we have a high priest mediating between us and God. A high priest that God himself provided. Friends, I think if the fear that God's wrath will be upon us stops us from coming to him, we are kind of saying that we don't have a high priest, isn't it? God loves us. He wants us to draw near to Him. Of course, we should approach God with a reverent fear, but we should approach Him confidently, expectantly, with joy, because we know that He appointed for us a high priest. You know, I was also wondering why the author needs to quote Psalm 2 here, again, uh, which is talking about Jesus' sonship, when he could have just quoted Psalm 110. I think we get the answer if we look back up to chapter 4 and verse 14. Look there with me. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. I think that by re-quoting Psalm 2, the author wants to link the Son that he has been talking about to the high priest that God has appointed for us. He's not just another human high priest who is sinful and separated from God. He is the Son of God, the heir of all things, through whom God created the world, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And listen to this. He is seated down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has passed through the heavens. I think that's what that means. He is in the very presence of the Father. Our high priest doesn't access the Father through a temple or a tabernacle only at certain times of the year. He's at the Father's right hand, right beside Him, speaking to Him freely at any time, always interceding for you and me. Again, again, I think we can respond to this with confidence. Confidence that we can go to God any time for mercy and help in any time of need. And confidence that God always hears us because our high priest is at his right hand, always interceding on our behalf. And there's no barrier between Jesus and the Father. Go to him immediately in a sudden time of panic. Go to him immediately when temptation arises. 
Go to him immediately when grief and despair start to well up. Go to him immediately when fear creeps into your heart. Go to him at 3 a.m. when your troubled mind keeps you up. Go to him at 8 a.m. when you are dreading the work day ahead. Go to him at 3 p.m. when you are at home alone, feeling lonely, when you are exhausted from taking care of the kids. Go to him at 8 8 p.m. when after a long, tiring day, you struggle to love your spouse. Draw near to God to receive mercy and grace to help in any time of need, confident that He is listening. Consider secondly that you can draw near because Jesus can sympathize with you fully. Let's pick up in chapter 5, verse 7 to 8. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. It's almost as if the author of Hebrews knows what we might be thinking, right? Okay, Jesus is our high priest, uh, but he's God's son. he's, He's high up there. He has no sin. How would he understand me and what I am going through? How can I trust him to to represent me before God? Friends, do you see Jesus as someone who is high up above, watching you face temptation and waiting to catch you messing up again so that he can go, look, fail again? Do you see Jesus as someone who is only near to you when life is good and all is going well? Do you see Jesus as someone who keeps a distance from you when temptations come and says, okay, you won't self-settle, Do you see Jesus as someone who keeps a distance from you when you are in pain and suffering and says, gosh, I don't want to get into that mess? Friends, would you allow Scripture to change your mind about Jesus and change your heart towards Him? Go back and look at chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You know, when my extended family would go for New Year's dinners at Chinese restaurants, uh, there would be a dish with whole abalones. And I used to keep one whole abalone in my mouth for hours past dinner, just sucking on it. And the thing never ran out of flavor. I think some verses in the Bible are like that. You can keep squeezing them and they won't, run, they won't run dry. I think this verse is one of them. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin wrote a whole book titled The Heart of Christ just on this one single verse. And he explains why he chose this verse for his book. Oh, he writes in Old English, so, uh, which might be hard to understand, so let me just try my best to use modern English. Essentially, he writes... I have chosen this text because above any other text, it speaks of Jesus' heart the most. And it sets out the form and workings of his heart towards sinners. And this text does it so well that it's almost like it's taking our hands and laying them upon Christ's breast and letting us feel how his heart beats and how his affections yearn towards us, even now when he's in glory. 
and the very purpose of this text being to encourage believers against all that may discourage them as they consider Christ's heart toward them now in heaven. In other words, friends, if you want to know the heart of Christ towards sinners and sufferers like you and me, if you want to know Jesus, uh, you, you want to know how Jesus feels in his gut, in his affection towards us, in our pain, our failures, in our darkness, this is a great verse to memorize and to meditate upon. What well, the author proves his point in this verse by reminding us of Jesus' life on earth. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. We think to Luke 19, when Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem because of their rejection and unbelief. Friends, have you wept for unsaved loved ones? Jesus knows how that feels. We think to John 11, when Jesus wept as he witnessed the grief of those he loved and as he saw his close friend lie dead in the tomb. Have you wept at the loss of a loved one? Jesus knows how that feels. We think to the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled and prayed earnestly to his father in agony that if possible, the cup be removed from him, his sweat becoming like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Have you ever felt your insides being torn apart? Your heart wanting to submit and obey to God, obey God, but your mind and your body pulling you in the complete opposite direction? Jesus knows what it feels like. We think right after that, when Jesus finds his disciples sleeping instead of praying, even after he has told them that his soul was very sorrowful, have you felt lonely in your suffering, deserted when you needed support the most? Jesus knows what that feels like. And we think to when Jesus hung on the cross, mocked and scorned by those he came to save, asking the Father to forgive them for they know not what they do. Have you been falsely accused? Have you been misunderstood? Jesus knows what that feels like. He was a man of sor sorrows, acquainted with grief. Friend, Jesus stands in solidarity with you in your suffering. He knows exactly what it feels like to be weak and helpless. And he knows what it feels like when the only thing you know to do, the only thing you can do is to drop on your knees and pray. Notice the parallel use of the word offer in 5 verse 3 and 5 verse 7. The human high priest offered sacrifices for their sin as well, so they shared in the experience of the people. What Jesus shares in your experience when you bring your petitions, your requests, lamentations, cries before God, because he himself was completely dependent on God as he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And Jesus was hurt because of his reverence. Here, I don't think the author means that God saved Jesus from physical death because Jesus did die physically. I think he means spiritual death, which God saved Jesus from by helping him, helping him persevere in purity to the end helping him to be obedient from the start of his life to the, all the way to the point of death, even death on the cross. And we know that this is true 
Because death could not hold Jesus, God raised him from the dead. And now he is exalted at God's right hand. Consider verse 8 with me. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I think we can agree that this doesn't mean Jesus was sinful and needed to learn to obey God's law. Uh, It doesn't mean he did wrong things in his life on earth and needed correcting. But rather, I think it means that Jesus experienced the challenge of obedience, the difficulty of obedience. He faced real temptation, and he really had to fight and oppose sin. And that's painful. You and I know that. Obedience entails suffering. But friends, Jesus understands that. He understands the suffering that comes with wanting to be obedient. And he can sympathize with you in that. In every respect, he has been tempted as we are. Yet, he was without sin. Are you sure he understands us? You may ask. He is without sin. How would he know what it feels like? Listen to C.S. Lewis. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been felt like what it would have been like an hour later. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Unquote. There is no temptation that you've ever felt that Christ has not felt stronger. He understands you. Friends, all that is to say, go to Jesus. He can sympathize with you fully and he can deal with you gently. Go to the one who, when a leper begged for healing, was moved with pity. He didn't keep his distance. He stretched out his hand to touch the leper and made him clean. Go to the one who did not shun sinners, but sat among tax collectors and ate with them. Go to the one who said of himself, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Go to the one who described his own heart by saying, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus deals with you gently, no matter how serious your offense, no matter how embarrassing your issue, no matter how shameful you feel, no matter how fragile you are. Because what causes him to respond gently to you doesn't depend on these things. It's whether you come to him. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. So friends, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Confidence that you will not be ridiculed or looked down upon or ignored or cast away because you have a great high priest that can sympathize with you and deal gently with you. Friends, isn't there also something we can learn here about how we relate to each other, about how we respond to each other's sin, about how we come alongside each other in times of difficulty and need? Are we not ourselves beset with weakness? Are we not ourselves ignorant sometimes, wayward sometimes? Do we not know how the struggle with sin feels like? Do we not know how painful grief and anxiety and turmoil can feel? How should that affect the way that we respond to each other's sin 
and trials. Are we interested to help? Are we humble and approachable? Are we gentle with each other? Are we kind? Or are we content to lock generic advice from a distance? Are we unwilling to give of our time and effort to walk alongside others? Are we judgmental and unforgiving? My friends, we are meant to reflect Christ towards each other. Christ sympathizes with our weaknesses. He deals gently with us. That is his heart towards sinners and sufferers. I pray that it is ours too. So that when we look at each other, we see Christ. Let's consider our final point. Consider lastly that you can draw near because Jesus deals with your sin completely. We finish up in verse 9 to 10. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we reach the pinnacle of the author's argument. And there is another reason that Jesus had to be without sin. It was so that he could be the perfect sacrifice. While the human high priest continually offered sacrifices for sin, Christ was himself the perfect, once and for all, sacrifice for sin. We heard today about the Creator God. We heard about man. We heard about sin. We heard that in the Old Testament, God put in place a sacrificial system that dealt temporarily with sin, but it was not perfect. But the Bible tells us that God, in His own grace and mercy, at the right time, gave His own Son to be born as a man, Jesus. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God. Jesus did not sin. He had no sin. And so He did not deserve the punishment that you and I deserve. But Jesus came as a substitute, a sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, to take the punishment for our sin on our behalf. He faced the wrath of God by himself in our place as his blood was shed, as he died on a Roman cross. And so just like how the sins of the people in the Old Testament were dealt with as they brought their sacrifices in faith, believing that their sins were being atoned for, so also the Bible tells us that the sins of anyone who places their faith in Jesus are now completely and fully dealt with. They no longer face the wrath of God. God forgives them because Christ has paid for their sin. Christ was the sacrifice for sin to end all sacrifices for sin. Friends, you can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that you will receive mercy. Not because you're feeling sorry enough or guilty enough. Not because the good that you've done outweighs the bad but because a perfect sacrifice has been made for you. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, has died in your place. But the Bible also tells us that death could not hold Jesus. After three days, God raised him from the dead. And the same thing will happen to anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. They will be raised to life with him. And Jesus has ascended to heaven, but he promised that he will return. And when he does, he will bring a new creation with him, new heavens and new earth. And in the new creation, everything will be perfect once more. God himself will be there, and so will all who have put their faith in Christ. God will dwell with them forever. 
they will enjoy his, his presence and His blessings once more. This is the eternal salvation that Jesus gives to those who obey Him. So friends, obey Him. Obey Him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you may be asking how. Well, the first way you can do that is to repent, to turn away from your unbelief in Him and believe in what He has done. And then, let Him have the rightful rule over your life. Remember, God knows what is best for us because He created us. He wants what's good for us. Obedience is hard, but this obedience is what ruined everything. And one man's obedience is what restores everything. So, brothers and sisters, can you see why weak, sinful, broken, messy, fearful, weary people like us can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find help in time of need. It is because we have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. He was appointed by God for you. He can sympathize and deal gently with you. He became the perfect sacrifice for you. Go to him. He will bring you home safely. Let's pray.